So I'll be reading from Ruth 3, and you can follow along with me on the screens behind me. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed me earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of your family, there is another one who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Uh, you may be seated. Also, if you do not have a copy of our Ruth Journal Companion Guide, uh, go ahead and raise your hands and the ushers will bring one to you. This is sort of designed to help you uh, do some study during the week related to the study. So here's Pastor Jordan. Well, good morning. I am Jordan, one of the pastors here at Salem, and usually on Sunday mornings I'm speaking with kids, uh, but today they gave me the easy job. <laughs> Pastor Seth's been gone this week enjoying the sunshine of Arizona and missing out on the wonderful blizzard we had yesterday. Lucky him. Well, several weeks ago, Seth asked if I would preach on one of my favorite uh, books of the Old Testament, and I jumped at the opportunity when he asked if I would preach on Ruth. And then he asked me to speak on March 12th and on chapter 3. It became clear to me that he was setting me up. 
First, I have to speak after losing an hour of sleep. And then he gives me chapter three of Ruth. The children's pastor gets perhaps one of the most steamy love scenes in all of the Bible. But I'm not one to back away from a challenge, so here I am this morning with you. If you're joining us online, I have to do this. A shout out to my mom and dad. Hi. They're definitely watching. Well, a few weeks ago, my family and I, we took a vacation uh, to visit my in-laws in Lake Havasu City, Arizona. It was an awesome getaway. We also got to miss a blizzard. And on our trip, we also spent a day in Las Vegas. Since I'm here with you this morning, you all know I did not win it big. I didn't gamble at all, but I did walk through a few of the casinos. It was fun to people watch, to see the men and the women pushing the buttons on the slot games, to hear the yells of excitement and disappointment. Everyone playing the games was risking their money in hopes of winning big. Though I wasn't willing to risk my money, it got me thinking about the risks that I have taken. And I remember the risk that I took when I first told my now wife, Lisa, that I love her. It's really cheesy. We were young, so give me a break here. But I'm about to tell you how not to tell someone that you love them. You see, it was in the summer, and Lisa was spending her days in the hot sun of Daytona, Florida, on a campus crusade summer project. I was stuck in my parents' house near Rochester, painting houses, making money. And we talked on the phone as much as we could every night for hours. We wrote each other letters, not emails, letters through the mail, the snail mail way. I thought a lot about how I was going to tell her that I loved her. I strategized during the day while I slopped paint on the houses until I finally got the courage to go through with a plan. Now, I'm pretty sure up until this morning, I've never shared this with anyone. So here's what I did. I took a dollar bill like this. Actually, this is the exact dollar bill. I wrote on it, uh, purchase a cherry Coke with this. That's her favorite pop. She didn't use it. We still have it. But I circled the letters, I-L-O-V-E, and then the letter U. There's no Y, apparently, on a $1 bill. <laughs> I put the dollar in an envelope with another letter, and I put a stamp on it, and I sent it off to Daytona. You see, it was a big risk for me to tell her this. What if she didn't feel the same way? My heart would have been broken. I would have been devastated. I wasn't even sure that I could say it without puking. <laughs> so I did the easiest thing I could. I was hoping to get her to say it to me when she read the dollar. <laughs> so the day she received the letter, and the dollar, she called me that evening. And the first thing she said to me was, do you mean it? <laughs> mean what? I said, what you wrote on the dollar, did you mean it? She replied, what did I write on the dollar? I said, 
Well, she was a lot smarter than me. So eventually, I finally caved and I told her, yes, I do love you. And I didn't puke. The rest of that summer, we continued to get vulnerable with each other and taking risks and sharing our secrets with one another. And each time we did, our love for one another grew. You see, love, it is strategic, it is risky, and it's pure. And when I told my wife that I loved her for the very first time, it took strategy. It was full of risk, and it was pure. So today we're going to look at Ruth chapter 3. It's a love scene that is also very strategic. It has lots of risk, but it's very pure. So if you brought a Bible with you, please open it to Ruth chapter 3. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be one, hopefully, in the pew back in front of you. I encourage you to follow along here. The screens will have it up there, but I sometimes fly through it and they can't keep up. They don't know where I am. If you're in your Bible, you'll be a lot better at following me than they probably will. Though this is their second time, so hopefully we're, we're really good. They, they're well practiced on this. So for the past three weeks, we've been journeying together through the book of Ruth. In chapter one, we were introduced to Naomi and her husband, Elimelech. The two of them and their two sons fled their home because of a famine that was happening in Bethlehem, and they landed in the land of Moab. Now, Moab is a place of storied history, and it's not good to the Israelite people. So as soon as they get to Moab, Elimelech, eventually, he dies, and then Naomi's two sons, they die as well. And she's left alone with two Moabite daughters-in-law. They are three widows who are childless, with no heirs and no family to carry on their line. And so what happens is Naomi hears that there is food now again in Bethlehem. And she decides to go back, telling her two daughters-in-law to stay there in Moab. One stays, the other Ruth looks at Naomi and she says this, I'm going with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I'm going to be buried with you. I am committed to you. And so Ruth and Naomi walk together back to Bethlehem. Naomi tells her friends who recognize her that she's bitter. She went away full, and she came back empty with nothing in her hands. Now, there's two major problems in the book at this point. These are two women in need of food and in need of family. Their need for food is tackled in Ruth chapter 2. Ruth goes out into the fields to glean. It was harvesting time and she just so happened to walk up into Boaz's field. And it just so happens that Boaz is there. He walks up and catches Ruth's eye. It was a romantic scene between the two of them in chapter 2. She comes back to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she is in disbelief. She cannot believe that all this grain has has been brought back to her. And the best part is, is when Ruth tells her whose field that she was in, Naomi immediately recognized that Boaz is from the clan of Elimelech, which means he is uniquely qualified to care for them. 
to provide for them, to protect them, and to take under his care as their guardian or kinsman redeemer. So Naomi says, Ruth, stay in his fields. Every day, go to his field. And that's exactly what she did. Every day throughout the harvest season, she's in Boaz's field. Week after week after week during the harvest season, she's in Boaz's fields. And this leads us to the most anticlimactic end to a chapter. It says, And so she lived with her mother-in-law. That's it. But, problem one was taken care of. They have food. But family is still a void. And this sets the stage for us this morning in chapter 3. So please, follow along as we journey through this. It's an intense scene of strategy, risk, and purity. So there are three scenes we see here in chapter 3. The first is in verses 1 through 5, something I'd like to call the strategy of love. Here we see Naomi thinking about Ruth and her well-being. It seems Naomi has been scheming while Ruth was gleaning. And contrary to what Disney might want you to believe, love doesn't just magically happen. Love is intentional and it thinks. And this is what Naomi has been doing. And way back in chapter 1, verse 9, we'll see Naomi, she prays that God would provide a husband for Ruth and Orpah. And now we see she has an opportunity for that to happen for Ruth. So she seeks to take action. You see, there are times when we are supposed to pray for something that only God can do. And so we pray and we wait, just as Naomi did. But then there are other times when we need to act upon what we're praying for. And so here's the strategy that Naomi comes up with. She tells Ruth that Boaz is going to be alone and tired after winnowing the barley on the threshing floor. She tells Ruth to wait for Boaz to finish eating and drinking. Now, let's be clear. Nothing in the text here would indicate that Boaz would be drunk. So we must assume that he's not. But we can assume that he is tired after a long day of work. And we can also assume that after that long day of work, his stomach is full, which would probably put him in a good mood. A full stomach for any man usually puts them in a good mood. So when Boaz falls asleep, Ruth is to approach him quietly and uncover his feet and lay down next to him. All right, this is where it gets a little difficult. Three words here in Hebrew are filled with sexual overtones. Uncover his feet or legs and lie down. That's not something you do with just anybody any day. As you're listening to this or as you're reading this text being described, you might be thinking, what is Naomi up to? The effect of these words in the original language is meant to send the hearer's minds racing. Uncover his legs? Lie down? This is what she's supposed to do. This is what a Moabite woman 
a worker in the field is supposed to do to an Israelite owner of the field? But Ruth responds in verse 5, I will do whatever you say. And so the strategy has been laid out for Ruth. Scene 1 of chapter 3 is over. Is she really going to take such a risk? What if it doesn't work out? What if he kicks her out of there? What if he takes her message the wrong way? After all, Ruth is about to go and propose to Boaz. Now, I'll show you why it's a proposal in a minute. But first, let's look at the risk she's about to take in this proposal. This proposal defies cultural norms of gender, age, status, and ethnicity. She's a woman proposing to a man. She is a younger woman proposing to an older man. She is a field worker proposing to a field owner. She's a foreigner proposing to a native. Well, at least she's doing it in the cover of night, so if things go wrong, maybe she can sneak out and nobody will see her. Ruth is taking a loving risk here. She is having to trust God in the circumstances to not only meet her needs, but Naomi's as well. Now, scene two, what I call the risk of love. So when she went down to the threshing floor, did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. She did it. That's it. But we're sitting here as an audience thinking like, well, what happened? And then the narrator tells us, verse 7, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. So it just so happens he is in good spirits. He goes far away from everybody else. I don't think this is a coincidence. He's secluded, and then he lays down. And here you have Ruth. You can almost hear her heart beating as she's watching this happen. She's anticipating what she's about to do. She sees him walk over to the side by himself. He lays down. He goes to sleep. I bet she's looking. All right, is he asleep? Is he asleep now? Maybe he rolls over a little or just kind of coughs. And then she's like, nope, nope, he's not asleep yet. I'll wait, I'll wait, I'll wait. So she waits till he's asleep. And then she gets the courage. And it says, Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lays down. Wow. All right. <laughs> it's happening here. This is more than just taking a nap on his feet. Right? This is provocative language in the original language. But the narrator doesn't tell us anything here that calls into question the morality, nobility, or purity of Ruth or Boaz. But the scene is intense. Let's not forget, this is the threshing floor in the times of the judges where prostitution is rampant. And now verse 8 says, In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Now, most commentators here would say that it was probably a breeze on his bare legs that woke him up. 
highly doubt Ruth is sitting there sleeping. She's probably not snoring at his feet. Her heart is beating way too fast for that. She's waiting. She's anticipating this moment when he's going to wake up, not knowing when it would be. But she's there. And then Boaz awakes and asks this question in verse 9. Who are you? She responds, I am your servant Ruth. Now, what's interesting here is that the word servant, she had mentioned this same word earlier in chapter 2, verse 13, when she's speaking to Boaz and she said, you have spoken kindly to your servant. But what's interesting is that it's a totally different word that she's using to describe herself now in chapter 3 than when she first met Boaz. When she first met Boaz, the word servant meant something more like slave. This time, though, it's a much more personal word. It's basically her saying, I am your servant. I am available for a relationship with you. And then after answering Boaz's question, Ruth departs from Naomi's game plan. What did Naomi say? She said, Go and cover his feet, lie down, he will tell you what to do. Right? So we, as the audience, are thinking, all right, she's introduced herself, our eyes go back to Boaz to see what he's going to do. All right, well, what's he going to do? And then Ruth just starts speaking again. She keeps talking, but listen to what she says. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me. Since you are a guardian redeemer of our family, this right here is a very clear proposal. Ruth is saying, I want you to marry me. This is forward. This is much, much more risky, much more blatant than when I first told Lisa that I loved her. (laughs) Spread the corner of your garment over me. This is a phrase that only a husband does with a wife. What's really interesting is the word garment here is the same word that is used back in Ruth chapter 2 verse 12 when Boaz was speaking to Ruth and praying a blessing over her. Boaz said, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, the word wings is the same word that's translated garment in chapter 3, verse 9. And so basically what Ruth is saying is, Hey, Boaz, remember when you prayed the Lord would spread his protection over me? Well, now it's time for you to be the answer to that prayer. Hmm. Gotta love when a wife uses scripture on you. This is more than Naomi had told Ruth to do. She is stepping out here and it creates this anticipation in our hearts and our minds are thinking, how in the world is Boaz going to respond to this? A Moabite just proposed to an Israelite. A worker in the field just proposed to the field owner. A younger person just proposed to an older person. This is breaking all the rules. 
how was he going to respond? This was risky. Boaz could have scolded her at that point. What are you doing? You shouldn't be here. Go back home. Never come back to my field again. He could have taken advantage of her. This was risky and dangerous. Then in verse 10, Boaz says, The Lord bless you, my daughter, and we all can take that sigh of relief for her. Boaz is going to respond favorably to Ruth. He's not going to take advantage of her in any way. He's wanting to bless her instead. And then he goes on, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. Now here he's talking about the kindness that he had shown Naomi. And he says, you have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Boaz is stunned that she is actually interested in him and not the younger men. Boaz then says in verse 11, Now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Now, this is that phrase that Seth had mentioned last week from Proverbs 31, a woman of noble character. Proverbs 31.10 says, A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. I think Boaz knows he found one. Think about Ruth as noble. She worked hard, providing for her family, being Naomi, her mother-in-law. She followed her from her home to Naomi's. And then you get to the very end of Proverbs 31, verse 31, where it says, Give her the reward she has earned. Let her works bring her praise at the city gate. And again, the same language is used there in Proverbs is the same language that's used back in Ruth 3.11 when it talks about the townspeople. The people at the gate are the ones who speak of how noble she is. Now let's go back to Ruth 3.11. She's a woman of noble character, and it's at this point things are going incredibly well for her. And then Boaz says in verse 12, Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. We were just getting to where things were good and coming together, and we find out there's another guy in the picture? But Boaz goes on saying, Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do this duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. We can maybe start to hear those wedding bells ringing. So here they are. They're not sleeping, I guarantee it. They are staring up at the stars. I imagine Boaz, he might be thinking, all right, I'm going to go into town and I'm going to declare my desire to be married to this Moabite woman. Wait, I'm going to declare my desire to a Moabite woman? What are the people going to think? What about the guy who can redeem her? What if he decides to do that? And then I bet Ruth, on the other hand, she's thinking, in the next 24 hours, I'm going to find out who my husband is going to be. 
Now, she probably would love it to be Boaz, but it could be this other guy. And so it says in verse 14, So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And she said, And he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. In other words, let's just keep this whole deal between you and me. It's our little secret. And he also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. And this takes us to scene three, what I call the result. Now, there was no text messaging back in this day. So Naomi, she's back home clueless of what's going on. No idea. Then Ruth arrives and Naomi asks, how did it go, my daughter? This could also be translated to, who are you, my daughter? Naomi's asking Ruth, are you still a Moabite woman or not? Ruth then tells her everything that happened and added that he had given her this barley to bring back to Naomi. She says, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Now, why would that be significant? Have you seen the word empty before in the book of Ruth? It immediately should take our minds back to chapter 1, verse 21, when Naomi came back from Moab with Ruth by her side, and she said, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And so here's the picture. The narrator, in God's sovereign design of this book, gives us a picture of Ruth coming back from Boaz with not just grain, but a promise to redeem, to see to it that their family is redeemed. And the message is, you're not empty. You're not empty. What a great message. This is a great story, isn't it? What a great picture of strategic, risky, pure love. Naomi in chapter 1 had prayed that Ruth would rest in the home of another husband. When she saw an opportunity for that to happen, she made a strategic plan instead of just waiting. And sometimes, sometimes we need to strategically act toward what we pray for. And this reminds me of a time a few months ago when I didn't act on what I was praying for. See, I have a friend who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus that I've been praying for. I was praying that God would provide an opportunity for me to invite him to church with me or to just be able to share with him how much I love Jesus. And then the time came, but I wasn't ready, and I missed the opportunity. I wasn't ready because I hadn't really thought about how I would invite him or share Jesus with him. But I think I didn't make those plans also because I wasn't really ready to take the risk. I was perhaps a little afraid of how it might change our relationship. See, Ruth took a big risk going through with Naomi's plan. Then she took an even bigger risk when she strayed away from that plan and boldly asked Boaz to marry her. She took a loving risk to trust God to not only meet her needs, but also Naomi's. Loving others requires risk. The Apostle Paul risked his life 
to share Jesus with others out of love for them and a love for God. Now, if we remember back at the casinos, casinos, they're all about risk. Every action done within a casino is about risk. Yet, we all agree, the house always wins. But you see, when God is the house and he's on our side, we can't lose. For us, when Ruth boldly asked Boaz to marry her or when I told Lisa that I loved her, it might seem like a big risk. But in the, the larger picture of our salvation, if our risks are grounded in the love of God, then we really aren't risking anything because in the end, God always wins. So as we make plans, as we strategize things, as we make risky decisions, we must remember there is one person on whom everything depends, and that's the Lord Jesus. Following him and his plans is not going to be easy. It will take risks. Sometimes those risks won't go our way. But God expects us to accept all that he plans for us and to obey him completely. So even when things don't go our way, and they won't, we can find peace in knowing that God is still sovereign. God is in control. And he loves us so much. Love. It's pure. It requires strategy, risk, and purity. Now, Ruth and Boaz on the threshing floor could have gone very, very wrong. But I want you to see the purity in this chapter. Two remarkable levels of purity are seen here. First, you got to remember that this story happened in the time of Judges. Judges was a period when sexual immorality, immorality was rampant. Everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes with very little thought of repercussion. And to see this scene of a man and a woman alone, secluded on the threshing floor, and for both of them to walk away morally pure, not having given in to the temptation, but un that un it was there. The temptation was undoubtedly there. And the author is intentional to show us with this kind of language that this was an intense scene, yet they walked away pure. Now, if you want to see the opposite of this pure love scene, take a look at Genesis chapter 19. Write this down. Spend some time later today, tomorrow. Look at the opposite of this love scene in, chap in Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 through 37. You might find some cool correlations between that scene and this scene that we have here. I will not spoil it for you, but please look at it. It's very interesting. You see, love is strategic. It's risky and pure. So how can we take what we learn from this chapter and put it into action? Love is strategic. And in Ezekiel 18.4, it says, The soul who sins is the one who will die. You know, God knew this. It was his law. And in love... God had a strategic plan to accomplish our salvation. He didn't look for a way to evade this. 
Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God sent Jesus to be our one and only kinsman, redeemer. He made a plan to redeem us. Now let's remember that it's important to think about those we love and how we can show them that we love them. It'll take thought. You know, I don't just wake up every morning and just magically love my wife. I don't inadvertently show her that I love her. It takes thought. Sometimes it might just be a random text with a kiss emoji. I'm cheesy, okay? Or maybe it's just a simple I love you. But it takes thought. Maybe you have a neighbor or a coworker or friend that you've been praying for to know and love Jesus. Have you thought about how you might start telling them about Jesus or showing them how Jesus loves them through acts of kindness of your own? You know, whatever your plans, make sure they are grounded in prayer and guided by the Lord. Your plans, they're going to take risk. You will need to step out and risk them not loving you back. Maybe they'll shut you down and ignore you. Maybe you'll even lose your job for speaking to a coworker about God or to a student. But when you live in the presence of God and you are in his house, remember, the house always wins. God is in control and he loves you very much. He has redeemed you. Love, it's pure. It is a picture of integrity and holiness. And I pray that God would raise up Ruths and Boazes in our community. I pray that teenage girls, college girls, single women in this room and listening online would desire purity and holiness of God above anything else, even more than a relationship with a man. I pray that God would raise up teenage guys, college guys, single guys who refuse to gratify their own desires and or compromise the holiness of a woman of God in order to pursue their own pleasures. I pray that not just singles, but married men and women who live right now in a day of impurity and immorality would instead choose to love purity and holiness. I pray that they would take into consideration what they see, what they expose themselves to on the internet or in movies, and how those things might compromise their purity. I pray, Salem, that we would be a people who are pure in our love. God, give us this kind of purity, this kind of love we know only comes from your heart and your strength. God, do that in us today. You see, love is strategic, risky, and pure. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be the one we seek after, that you would be the source of our pure love. Father, may we see in Ruth the strategy and risks and purity, and may we think about how we can live that out in our lives this week. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to think of those who we know that we want to see to come to know you. May we strategize and pray with you. May we be willing to take the risks that are involved in telling them who you are. Lord, and may we do it with pure hearts, pure minds, focused only on you and not on the benefit of ourselves. Father, help us to remember that no matter the risks we take, you are the one who wins. And may we give you glory in all that we do. In your name we pray. Amen.